Welcome back to the very first episode of IGEN Politics Live. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and we are very honored to have on our first live show, Andrew Weissman, who we know all of our audience knows very well. So we're going to get right into our questions. Victor, take it away. I do have one question first, which is I, I watch you a lot on MSNBC and you always have different backdrops. And I'm wondering which st- which room are you in? Because <laughs> you always have different ones. Uh, I am in my living room, which I think real estate brokers would call the great room because <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like chef's kitchen and great room. And anyway, it's my it's uh, main room in my uh, apartment in, in New York. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, so let's start with the um, Mueller investigation, because um, that's, I think, you know, a lot of people associate you with that and, and your role on that um, investigation team. And that was, to me, one of a, like a really fascinating moment, because as a young person, that was the first ever impeachment uh, testimony I ever watched, uh, first ever impeachment experience I kind of underwent. And so I'm wondering if you thought that was the right outcome uh, because there was no indictment of the former president. So, um, you know, the, the special counsel investigation and the two impeachments, I sort of very separate in my head because they're, they were on such different topics. Um, But to, to focus on the special counsel investigation, um, and this Jill will probably under, understand where I'm coming from. The the issue of of what would happen to it was not something that I thought about, or I won't say cared about. I did care about it, like as a citizen. But my job was very much um, investigating, making prosecutorial decisions about what to do, trying to uh, get people to cooperate, um, and then something a little unusual for a prosecutor is then writing up the report. Um, At that point, what happened to the report was something for the Attorney General of the United States and then ultimately for Congress and the people of the United States to figure out what to do with. Um, Personally, I, um, I thought that there's a big disconnect in, in my mind if you have a rule in the Department of Justice, a rule, not a law, that says that you can't indict a sitting president. But once the, that sitting president is no longer the president, the de facto rule is let's bygone, let bygones be bygones and let's move on. Because mm-hmm. that's what happens. You end up de facto with a rule which is that the president is above the law. Um, so that was, yeah, to me, that's where the disconnect was sure. in terms of what we did and the lack of follow through afterwards. Okay. So let's probe that a little bit because I share that concern gravely. And we had this during Watergate, as you know, where I urged very strongly that as soon as he was out of office, that Nixon be indicted. There was nothing to make him special. He was an ordinary citizen once he resigned. And unfortunately, in the time that we debated with Leon Jaworski, who was our special prosecutor at the time, he got pardoned. And our research showed pardons are forever. You can't do anything about it. But I agree that makes him above the law. It means he can violate anything he wants while he's president. 
and he can't be indicted while he's president. And then, well, we're not going to do it afterwards either, particularly with this one who is now saying, and watch out if you do, there's going to be blood in the streets. He's not asking his people to do it. He's just predicting, according to him, that that's what will happen. So what's the answer to that? How do we change that? Um, so, you know, I don't have the answer to that question, but I think, I think it's important for us to think about how we think about our political leaders. And Jill, I couldn't agree with you more when you said something, words to the effect of, you know, he's just a person. Um, and, you know, for many, many, many centuries, uh, most of the world has been governed by autocrats and kings and not in the form of democracy. And I think one has to really think about where that comes from, where, mm -hmm. where people are willing to sort of view their leaders and have their leaders treat them that way. Uh, and not to view the uh, president as anything more than an, an individual who works for us, not the vice versa. It doesn't mean you don't have to have enormous respect for the presidency. Um, and, but, but they are just a person and the idea that they are not subject to the laws of our land uh, is something that we really need to get over. It's not, it's not to say that we want to turn into uh, a country where you're constantly, you know, you have a, uh, what's referred to derogatorily as a sort of banana or a public where you go after your leaders. Yeah. But right. th there are answers to that, um, which is to make sure that the crimes that you are pursuing uh, are serious, where the proof is serious, and you're not doing a show trial. Right. The answer is not, we just don't hold those people to account. And just to be clear, it's not like there aren't other so-called first world countries where leaders are charged. In other words, it happens in France. It's right. currently going on in Israel. Um, to my mind, uh, it is the, the lack of accountability that will turn us into a banana republic, not the opposite. I agree with you yeah. completely. And one more question about the Mueller report itself, which is I'm sure you've heard the criticism that it was written obtusely and sort of in negatives instead of positives. And um, I'm wondering if you had had total control over writing it, is that how it would have been written? Or would you have said more forthrightly, these particular episodes of obstruction of justice would be indictable if it weren't for the Office of Legal Counsel, period, end of sentence. Yeah, I. Um, so let me unpack that in two ways. First, I think that there was insufficient attention and valuing the role of, of how we were going to communicate uh, our decisions, what, regardless of, of um, the, the sort of more important question you have, Jill. But I think that's one of the lessons from the January 6th committee, which is that I, I always thought that we needed to be very focused on how this was going to be communicated. One place where I absolutely revere Director Mueller, uh, Special Counsel Mueller, he's a wonderful public servant. But 
I, I don't think you can be reticent about the testifying before Congress. I view that as part of the job. It is not part of the job of a normal prosecutor, but this is not a normal prosecutor. Um, the second issue is one that I've written about in my book, which is that I actually thought that we should come to a conclusion. It's actually called for in the special counsel rules. And I think we should have just said it. And I think it would have been absolutely clear that, that and, and Mueller, I think actually during the congressional hearing kind of slipped and said it too, which was, yes, of course he obstructed justice. I mean, this, again, I don't know what you think, Jill, as, a, as someone who's yeah. in the business, but I mean, this was not a close call. Right. Um, there was so much evidence of it. The Don McGahn piece alone I mean, who asked their White House counsel to lie for them and memorialize it in a fake document that they were going to keep in their safe so they could hold it over uh, Don McGahn and he would never be able to change his mind? I mean, that is like mob stuff um, that, that happened. So, yes, I think that we should have just been very clear and made that determination. But let me just tell you quickly why Director Mueller did not want to do that. He had a view that comes from the Department of Justice policy that unless you're indicting somebody, you do not speak badly about that person. In other words, it's, it's the so-called put up or shut up. It's the yeah. anti-Jim Comey rule. For a whole variety of reasons, I don't think that applied here. Um, and it also isn't the case that uh, this particular issue um, was that he was not going to have his day in court. It just would, he may not have his day in court quickly um, until he's no longer the president. But that, that's sort of a longer topic. Yeah. I, go, go ahead, Victor. I just wanted to say I, yeah. I agree uh, completely. And it, it is the same thing we had in Watergate, which is, and I think our failure to act on indicting him after he wasn't president set a very bad precedent that, needs to be undone because this case is one where if nothing happens, it is going to be the worst image for America within America and abroad. And it's, it, it needs to be done where the evidence is as clear as you've just noted. It is, it's not a close case. He obstructed justice. He should have paid the price for it once he wasn't president. Mm -hmm. go, go ahead, Victor. Sorry. I totally agree. Also, I want to hone in on one word you mentioned uh, in describing Trump, which is uh, a mob boss. And I'm wondering, as, as someone who has prosecuted so many cases, can you make that comparison about Trump to a mob boss more clearly for my generation? Like, how much does he resemble an actual mob boss? So it's it's interesting. The first time I'd heard that analogy, Jim Comey had made it. And uh, mm -hmm. just to be right out there and be direct, I'm not a Jim Comey fan. I lost an enormous amount of respect for him uh, in the way he dealt with the Clinton investigation. Yeah. Hmm. And when I first heard it, I thought, oh, that's just Jim Comey with his hyperbole. And I, I poo-pooed it. Well, I was wrong. Um, he, that part of, of what he said, I really do think is right. And obviously the analogy only goes so far, just to be clear. Well, I do think you could argue that uh, the former president does have some blood on his hands in light of how he dealt with the COVID um, uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, it's not the same as uh, John Gotti or Vincent Giganti, where you're actually murdering people. I mean, it's just that's that's just not an appropriate analogy. Um, there there are different types of crimes and 
Um, so you have to be careful with that analogy. But having said that, in terms of um, no regard for the rule of law, being above um, that, reigning through fear and terror, um, obstructing uh, justice and getting witnesses not to talk, but not through killing them or threatening them with death, but through things such as pardon power. Um, mm. there, so there, there are different ways that it works. Um, so that, um, and obviously it's, we're talking about leaders of, an, of a right. group or organization. So there, there are different ways to do that analogy with, with obviously important differences. So having been an organized crime prosecutor, I can say one other similarity is that the the mob boss doesn't ever get caught as directly because he speaks and communicates in ways that aren't traceable and aren't obvious. He doesn't say, go kill someone. He just silently and subtly lets people know the outcome he wants mm -hmm. and they go and do it. And that's sort of the same thing that Donald Trump was. I want before we. I want to move to Mar-a-Lago and the search and the special master. But one last question on on the special counsel. I mean, we've had a number of different special counsel. Uh, the Ken Starr. We've had this Watergate one. We've had the Mueller, and each has operated under completely different rules, and. I think we had the most independence and that that's what you really need to have a special prosecutor. Do you think that? Yeah, I look, I, uh, I think it is such a hard question, Jill, because you can, for every time you come up with, Oh, you know, let's have independence. There's a counterexample of independence run amok, <laughs> um, which I would view can start um, yes. as an example of that. Um, so some of this is structural and some of this has to do with the individual who's selected. Robert Mueller was never going to be Ken Starr, even in a, Ken, in, even in a system yeah. of more independence, because that's not who he is and that's not who, how he viewed his role and his obligation to the public. Um, and you could have had a Ken Starr even within our more restrictive um, rules mm. that could have run the investigation in a way that would have, I think, been less um, responsible. So th you know, th that's not to say that there aren't problems with the structure that we currently have. I think there there are. Um, and we saw an example of that, which was that we were w solely within the Department of Justice and totally beholden to an yeah. attorney general. And the attorney general, who we ended up in front of by the end, and my view was completely political and um, very, very dishonest in the way he uh, did the rollout of our report. Agree. Very interesting. So let's transition into Mar-a-Lago, um, which has consumed so much of the news these past few weeks, as it should. Um, Let's. That was such a historic moment. On Monday, August 8th, the FBI conducted this search into the property of Mar-a-Lago. And I'm wondering, do you think any of Trump's arguments or his lawyers' arguments have any legal or factual validity? Well, so far, I'm not hearing any actual legal or factual defense. I mean, let's just, <laughs> let's, just let's just focus on the the fact that the the things that we're hearing have to are all sort of very. Um, or the things that appeal to someone's base, which is, oh, isn't it outrageous that a search was done? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer to that's no. 
um, this happens to, to going back to the, our initial discussion, he is being treated actually not worse than anyone else, but better. I mean, yeah. no question that if I had done that, I would not be sitting here with you. Well, let's just put it this way. You, my room radar would drop dramatically because of the cars. So, uh, you know, the only, the only uh, defense uh, that I've really heard uh, is uh, one that has not been made in court, which is the uh, former president saying that he had some kind of bizarre order that because he moved something from the Oval Office to his residence, in other words, within the White House, because he transports a document from one room to another, it would just spontaneously become <laughs> declassified, even, by the way, if it's a document that is involves nuclear secrets. I mean, so the, this idea that no matter what it is, it just spontaneously, that's what happens. Um, that's not actually a defense. I mean, because as many people have pointed out, none of the three crimes that the government relied on for the search actually were technically required that the document right. be classified. Um, I should point out, which is something which I think has gotten not enough attention, which is that the government ultimately is not limited to charging just those three crimes. Um, you can have a search where you're looking for certain crimes, but by the time the investigation's over, you realize that there are other things that you would, might want to charge. Uh, I looked at this and thought, oh, you know, there's just theft of government property, which is uh, 18 U.S.C. 641. There's 1001, which is making a false statement. Right. There are all sorts of other crimes that you could ultimately see. Uh, Section 2, which is aiding and abetting. Section 371, which is conspiracy. So it's important to keep your eye on the ball, which is that there are many other crimes that potentially could end up being charged. Um, but to me, I, I've yet to hear a unarticulated legal defense. It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, they're throwing around terms like attorney-client privilege, which seem absurd on their face, executive privilege. How could you possibly, with a straight face, go to court and say to a judge, executive privilege for a classified document that you didn't create. And even if he had somehow done this miraculous, spontaneous combustion that declassified things when he moved them, they still pose a threat to our national security. And that's really the standard. It's not whether it's actually technically classified. And furthermore, President Biden could reclassify them because he has the power to do that. And Donald Trump doesn't. So everything that they have thrown against the, you know, the, there's this phrase of they're throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what will stick. So far, I can't see anything that's going to stick. And even the 11th Circuit, with its high preponderance of Republican appointees, I think is going to see right through this. Um, and that the lawyers who made some of these, you know, you have Christina Bob who did the, uh, statement that there's nothing else and I've never been informed that there's anything anywhere else, I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble and could end up being significant witnesses against him. Do you think so? Yeah, you know, the analogy I have is uh, in the Paul Manafort investigation, we had a situation where 
both Paul Manafort and Rick Gates had made representations to the Department of Justice through a very eminent counsel at Aiken Gump. And she had represented that there are no documents, that certain things had happened and didn't happen. And we, we knew those statements were false. In fact, it was really similar. When we did a search mm. of Paul Manafort's house, we found all these documents <laughs> that were everywhere. So we knew the statement was false. And we made a motion to the chief judge, uh, Beryl Howell, saying, we don't want to ask a lot of questions. We want to ask a limited range of questions to the attorney. And by the way, in our situation, we made it clear the attorney was not in any way complicit. We had no evidence yeah. that she knew, but that's not required to pierce, to, to argue right. crime fraud. Uh, we also argued that she was a mere conduit, so this wasn't even attorney-client privilege. And we were allowed to ask the question, the sort of set of questions that basically were, who told you this? And of course, the lawyer we were dealing with was incredibly um, careful. So she had notes of everything. And for each thing in her letter, she had exactly who had oh. told her and on what day she had run the final letter by each uh, client. And so she was a really important witness for what we ended up charging, which was we ended up charging and both Rick Gates and Paul Manafort admitted to it ultimately in, uh, in different settings that they had lied to the government because they had caused their wow. lawyer to make these false statements. And there's a really terrific opinion by Chief Judge Howell in D.C., which, uh, you know, you can be sure that the Department of Justice has been reading that, um, and not for the very, for one reason, which is the, the current Solicitor General was in the special counsel office. Oh. I'm sure she is very aware of that. You know, John Dean and Jim Robinall have done for many years now a series of um, continuing legal education courses on ethics for lawyers. And it started because how many lawyers were actually involved as defendants in Watergate. And now, but it was for their actual criminal conduct, not for their role as lawyers, um, as representing a client. They just were involved in the obstruction. Uh, flat out, no question. But I think it's something that s many lawyers today might want to think about because I think there's a lot of ethical issues that require very, very special care. And um, But I want to move to ask you about uh, Judge Deary because I understand that you know him uh, personally. And yeah. so I, I, first I want to ask your opinion about this issue of he was involved in the FISA court that approved the Carter Page uh, warrant, which you would think would make Donald Trump go, I don't trust him, I don't want him, but which I'm now reading his lawyers think actually makes him skeptical of the FBI. So talk about what you know about him, about his reputation for fairness, and whether you think that his service on FISA will make him anti-FBI or what? Sure. So um, I know Judge Deary... Uh, because I started out as a prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York. I actually clerked for a judge there when Judge Deary was on the bench. So, um, I, and I've had a number of cases in front of him. Uh, he, he's somebody who, no matter who you ask, whether it's a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, a plaintiff or a defendant, everyone thinks the world of him. And that's saying a lot. 
Um, yeah. He is just so, so smart, so fair, so decent. Um, and Jill, to your point, I think what I would say to that is his, I obviously haven't talked to him about that, but I think his reaction would be the reaction that the three of us would have in the same situation, which is we'd be uh, not happy. Um, we would um, wonder how it happened. We'd be very concerned about how the government responded to it. But the idea that he's going to, uh, that it's going to cause him to have some bias against one person or another, um, people who were not involved in that situation, it, it's just it's just fanciful thinking. Um, he, like anyone, is going to deal with the facts in front of him and the people in front of them. And people, he does not do well with people who play games. He does extremely well with. Um, people who are forthright. I remember so quick anecdote when I was criminal chief, um, I had two situations where prosecutors had made, came to me and they had made mistakes in front of him, one in the middle of a trial. And I just said, you know what, go, just go back into court and tell the judge exactly what happened. And then let's, and tell him how we're planning on fixing it. And the lawyer did that. And the defense just started screaming about her. And the judge said, stop. You're not going to get more candid than what she just told you. She told you it was a mistake. She told you what happened. She told you how she's planning on dealing with it. What is your response to the proposal about how they're going to deal with it? That's the issue now. Yeah. And just cut off all of that because he just did very well with anybody who's made a mistake and then just is very forthright about how they approach it. So as you can tell, I really think the world of him, I'd just be really surprised if he doesn't uh, deal with this matter in a way that we all uh, think is is fair and just and um, and gives everybody an opportunity to be heard and then makes, uh, you know, smart, quick rulings. Good. And I hope he will be quick. Um, I mean, we're looking forward tomorrow to the first discussion between the, the sides and him to set at least the procedures that they'll operate under and um, maybe a time frame. But uh, one thing I just want to make clear, which is I think misunderstood sort of like what you said that hasn't gotten enough attention is that there are several things happening here about the special master. First, you have the horrible opinion, my opinion, horrible opinion um, by judge cannon, granting the request for one that I think is completely unnecessary. And people think that that's not being dealt with by the Department of Justice. But it's my understanding that they are not just saying we need a stay concerning the hundred documents that were seized that are classified, but we also need to get rid of the special master because there's no need for one. So they are doing two things at the same time. Is that a correct understanding? It's funny. I don't read it that way. I read it that they're willing to, that, that they think it's wrong, that I, they think it's totally unnecessary, which of course it is. Um, because let's just get real. We're talking about a tiny little search in terms of number of documents. I mean, just a little aside here, in this day and age where you're dealing with electronic data, when I heard that the number of documents are 11,000, I was just scoffing because that is <laughs> that is minute. Usually you're dealing with terabytes. 
there's zero reason that a judge needs to have a, a, a helper. I mean, that's all the special master is. It's special yeah. master to say, you know what? I don't have enough time in the day to handle all of this. Here, this is a judge, I think, fortunately saying, I don't want to handle it. And I, yeah. you know what? That's great news for the government that she's offloading this to not just a special master, but a special master who is an Article Three judge. Yeah. Um, so let, that's all good news for the the government. Um, but I think I think the only sort of real open issue tomorrow is sort of what they do with respect to the classified documents that are the subject of the appeal, because unless there's a stay of that part of her decision really quickly, part of Judge Deary's mandate is to prioritize the review of those. So as Jill said, I think tomorrow we're going to see him setting out really obvious, clear yeah. mechanisms to deal with this, which is in any normal case, this would have already been done um, where the judge would have said exactly what, by the way, happened in, all, in so many of the special counsels, right. which is, do the parties disagree? Um, is there, what is the disagreement? Does somebody say there's privileged documents? Does somebody say there's not on a specific document? If there's that disagreement, give me the document. If I need argument, I will ask for it. Um, it I mean, it's just, it goes so quickly. The idea, by the way, that the attorney-client group of documents has not been resolved is totally Judge Cannon's fault because the, the government came into court at the first hearing and said, we're happy to turn those over now. And she said, stop, which is insane. Why didn't she yeah. say, go forward and, and, and to the plaintiff, tell me if you think any of that is attorney-client, flag that for the government. Government, if you see that and agree, then turn those back over. If you disagree, bring them to me. I mean, this is right. not rocket science. Exactly. Boy, that is, you're so exactly correct on that. And a hundred documents is really what the stay argument is over. Yep. The special master could review those in what, a day, two days. I, you know, it doesn't seem like a very burdensome thing so that his review could be completed and arguments on the merits could be had faster than this will get appealed. So I'm hoping that maybe he will do that. And it seems like he might have the kind of clearance in the past that would let him go ahead without having a delay while he gets clearance to be able to look at highly classified documents. Yeah, um, I mean, I agree with you. I think with the issue, uh, normally this could happen so quickly. The issue I think will be that if he, if he wants to, and I think he will want to have at least somebody on the Trump team be able to be heard, um, that that could be the delay because they need to have clearance. And you have to identify who that would be. Some of these documents getting clearance may be a little tricky. Um, it can all be done in an expedited way, but that's a problem. And then there's the logistics of how um, the lawyers will see it. Um, yeah. because you, you have to go to a certain location and review it in person. These are not the kinds of things you email around, <laughs> needless to say. So the, the technical logistics are the only thing I think that would right. cause the, the problem. Well, we can only hope that Judge Cannon faces some consequences for her, her uh, failure to act in what I consider an appropriate way or to analyze things appropriately. But I mean, I think that's an inter interesting question. Do you think there is any form of accountability that we can 
that Judge Cannon can face in this situation or no? I don't think so. Um, you know, and I, I shared Jill's assessment of the opinions. I, I was, I was incredibly upset by them mm-hmm. as a lawyer. Um, and for two reasons, one, I, 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 at least two reasons, actually. One, I've never really seen a recitation of the facts be that partisan. Mm-hmm. And that that's a, a real no-no um, to, that you don't, aren't very forthright. Now, um, the other is her statement uh, that the fact that she was dealing with the former president gave, was, was a factor. And to me, that's a violation of her oath of office, that it, it isn't a factor. It has nothing to do with, this goes back to the beginning of our discussion, um, that you have an oath of office to treat like people alike. And, you know, it, I, it, it was very hard not to read uh, Attorney General Garland's statements on Saturday at Ellis Island as a critique of that kind of thinking. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I was like horrified at the elevation of the rights of the president over any other citizen, the former president. Mm-hmm. And, but I was equally horrified at the dismissive disrespect that she showed to the FBI and the Department of Justice and can't trust them. Why would they be able to say, just because they said it's classified, how do I know? I mean, uh, to me, that was equally horrendous. Absolutely. I mean, there, if there actually was a dispute, that's fine. I don't have yeah. the view, which is just because the government says it, you need to believe it, even if it's a matter of um, national security. I, I am enough of a sort of what I, I view myself as a liberal government lawyer. Um, and what I does do- that mean? What, what that means is that, it, yes, when you're in the government, you should people should assume you're telling the truth. But if it's challenged, you need to prove it. You need yeah, to. Yeah, of course. You're, it's not that the, the it's I don't have this sort of view that the, the court's role is to be a rubber stamp. Right. And um, the problem with her reasoning on that, which Jill points out, is there wasn't a dispute. There isn't a dispute in court about whether they're classified or not. The only person who has said that they, in fact, are not classified is the president not in court. Right. And the government kept on saying that in their reply brief, which is he keeps on saying he had the power to do this, but in no place does he actually say he declassified them. And there's a reason. One, lawyers get in a lot of trouble if you make a statement that's false, as we've talked about. And two, Donald Trump has a thousand and one exposure, false statements exposure, false. The crime of making a false statement includes making a false statement to a judge. So one of the things Donald Trump is extremely good at is saying things that are not true publicly, but not saying it in different fora where it could actually matter. So he didn't come in for an interview. Mm -hmm counsel investigation. He never actually um, submitted any written um, testimony or affidavit or letter in either of the impeachment hearings. He's very good at making his position known in a, in a public setting where it's not yeah. chargeable. That's so interesting. I, I'm wondering, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not in law school. I'm just an undergrad student. Looking at this has been just really interesting. How, I know you're a professor at NYU and you teach law students. How do you teach or how do you talk to your law students about this and justice when there are so clearly two tracks of justice here? One for, 
I guess, this president and or the former president and one for everyone else and what he can get away with. Um, no one else can. Like, how do you have those conversations with young with young people? Um, that specific issue has not come up, but the, you know, one of the things since I teach criminal procedure uh, at NYU is we started by teaching uh, the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. Mm. Um, and because it's public, um, I had the actual warrant and, and the redacted affidavit to use because there are a lot of Fourth Amendment issues. And it does raise issues about what is normally done and is that, and this obviously is not the norm, and trying to get students to think about is that which is the right way to do it. And even though you might not like the former president, is it actually, just remember, maybe all defendants should have this right. And it's to think about it from an academic point of view, but it does raise um, uh, behind the scenes, at least the, the question, Victor, that you're raising, which is, there's no question that what is going on does not happen in any normal criminal case um, at all. Um, and by the way, going back to Judge Deary, Judge Deary, who's been on the bench for decades and obviously was, a, you know, has done a yeah. ton of criminal cases and was the U.S. attorney, is going to be highly aware of just how unusual this is and how many more rights are being accorded to the former president. I think we also can't say enough that Judge Cannon was appointed by Trump and just one of the many lower court, lower court appointees that Trump appointed. And I'm wondering just for- And, maybe, and let's just add, yeah. she was appointed after he lost after, the election. Yeah. Yeah. The one, let me just push back on that for one second, which is that one of the things that was particularly dispiriting is that mm-hmm. what she did, because there was so little basis- um, in my view, no basis um, for her decision in the law or the I know we're recounting of the facts, that it really tars so many judges who have done the right thing, who do right. take their oaths mm. seriously. There were so many judges, at least in the lower courts, who come off really well on all of the challenges to the um, the last presidential election, including judges appointed by Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. who took their oath seriously and rejected those claims. Um, In the same week that her decision came out, uh, Dabney Friedrich, who is a district judge in D.C., appointed by Donald Trump, dismissed the Carter Page lawsuit. Why? Because it lacked merit. And she did so not for any political reasons, because she just followed the law. It's a real disservice to the judiciary to have Judge Cannon there because it really, it's always a question you ask, which is who appointed the judge. But it's nice to have so many counterexamples. But here, this is such a shining ball that you you can't take your eye off of, um, of an illustration of somebody who's clearly affected by, um, by that issue. You know, I'm old enough that I remember when it didn't matter who appointed judges dispensed impartial justice. And it wasn't based on whether they were appointed by a Democrat or a Republican. And one of the great issues and disservices that has happened because of the the recent spate of appointments and appointments that were barred, like Merrick Garland, and ones that were pushed through like Amy Coney Barrett is that it has caused a lack of trust in the courts. And that's really too bad because I remember when judges were all very much respected and viewed as impartial arbiters. So 
I I'm, hope we can get back to that. You know, when I was on the special counsel, I, I was in all my spare time, by the way, that's my joke. Um, I was reading <laughs> a number of different books and memoirs about Watergate. Um, and, you know, the main judge was a somebody who was a, a Republican yes. and supporter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's no fan of criminality and yeah. trying to do anyone any favors um, and you know, at least from the outside, looked like he was calling it down the, the middle in terms of, um, you know, if, if you were wrong, you lost. And if you were right, you won. Judge Sirica was a, a sui generis person who made a huge difference in the outcome of Watergate. No question about it. He was terrific. Um, and I've been honored recently to be in contact with his daughter um, who reached Ooh. out to me. And it's, it, yeah, I mean, and she adores him too. So it was, it's a good thing. Um, Hopefully we can return to that time when it doesn't matter who appointed the exactly. judge of justice. Um, so in the remaining time that we have, let's just talk about what's next. What are your predictions for what's going to happen in the next couple of days and weeks? If you can, if we can even look that far in advance. I think we will look back on the special counsel um, issue. I mean, the special master, so master. Sorry, as as a bit of a speed bump. I mean, it raises all sorts of issues and it's interesting, mm -hmm. but it is, it is soon going to be overtaken because the, this will get resolved um, unless something really unusual happens in the 11th circuit uh, that sort of delays the documents yeah. going over to uh, the government. Um, so um, I, I personally think that on the Mar-a-Lago part of the Department of Justice investigation, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to not charge the former president. Mm -hmm. And I say that because there's, I think there's too many precedent uh, in the department for prosecuting cases that are of lesser in uh, culpability. And you have an attorney general who is a judge for so long and is going to be so focused on precedent within the department and treating Donald Trump fairly, no better and no worse. Um, and so I just think that's going to be difficult um, for him to, to not go forward. Um, on the January 6th investigation, I think, I think it's going to be a, a longer time frame for a whole variety of reasons. Um, the crime, uh, is, is of at least equal, if not more importance to vindicate. I think the proof already that we know publicly is, is, is substantial. Um, as a prosecutor, you wanna make sure that you have a lot of direct evidence, which is mm -hmm. witnesses and documents about what the former president directly did, directly said, and who is exactly gonna be called. That's something when you watch the January 6th committee hearings, it, they don't have to worry about what's called the hearsay rules. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things where I'm thinking, okay, that's great, but you need to have certain witnesses locked in. You need to have certain things really, um, uh, you have your, have your ducks in a row. Um, I do think that one thing to keep your eye on though is state prosecutions. Uh, and that's because everything that we've talked about, the Mar-a-Lago case and um, the January 6th investigation, even if there were to be federal indictments, given the timing, um, if there were to be a Republican 
uh, president after in the next election, that Republican president has the power to stop the federal investigations Mm -hmm. and pardon uh, Donald Trump if he were charged. And I think it's almost impossible to imagine any of the federal investigations being done so quickly that they would actually get to trial and conviction before the next election. Um, so that's a little a little cold water right. <laughs> question we're having. But on the other hand, could we view that as that's going to be a real motivation for Democrats to make sure oh. that there isn't a Republican president and for not just Democrats, but for independents and for Republicans who believe in the rule of law. And totally. as to what, yeah, you agree with that? Totally agree that that that's right. Um, that as that's why I said if, um, right. and but I I agree with you that that it you know that is the thing that I, I as I've tweeted about it's to keep your eye on the clock here mm-hmm. um, as if on a federal level. Obviously, on a state level, it doesn't matter because a federal pardon has no has no right. Yeah. And I think we can also agree that um, the DocuGate, the Mar-a-Lago search results, um, which we're still looking for a name for, and Sisters-in-Law challenged our listeners to come up with some names that didn't have gate as part of it. Um, <laughs> and it should be Alago, maybe. Yeah, yeah we, we or Mal, which is or a Mal- form of Mar-a-Lago, yeah. so, you know mal something malfeasance for example uh was one of my suggestions right but i had mal malcontent was malcontent okay I, I think um other people have suggested nara lago yes <laughs> yeah. yes exactly and i think that's a good one but i think we can agree that that is not a document storage issue and it is something that people have gone to jail for that there have been past examples of people being indicted and punished for taking that kind of document that they have no right to. Um, so I, I just want to make sure we agree that that's not just a storage issue. My, my analogy to this storage issue um, claim was that's like a bank robber saying when, when they search the house and they find the proceeds saying, it's just a storage issue. <laughs> I was just keeping the stolen proceeds under my mattress instead of <laughs> at the bank. These were stolen crown jewels of the national security community. And to sit there and say it's a storage issue is, I mean, it's, it's so silly. And of course the people who are saying that are the people who had huge issues with what Hillary Clinton did. And so, I mean, it's, again, it's so, it's no comparison. It's just so pathetic. It's, you know, we're sitting here with three smart people having this discussion where we're having to use logic to deal with the (laughs) man. Well, this has been a great conversation. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again because I've enjoyed this enormously. And I know that our audience will have, I hope, learned a lot from this conversation. And we're very grateful for your taking the time to be with us today. And we hope they'll read your book as well. Where law ends, which I saw your tweet the other day, if Trump gets reelected, which God forbid, but if he does, then the next book is Tyranny Begins. Right. <laughs> yes. So, Andrew, thank you so much for inviting me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Andrew. Jill, that was such a fun conversation. 
I, I hope you learned a lot from it. And I did. I know yeah. before we started recording this live, um, you and I were just chatting and there were so many things that we referred to that it was like, well, Victor, have you ever heard of Enron, which is a <laughs> right. case that Andrew Weissman was involved in. And like, yeah. No, I haven't. And there were a couple of other things where it just is the difference between our generations. Yes. And I, in, in the future, you know, now that we're doing this live in future episodes, we're going to be able to interact. I'm very excited with our audience. They'll be able to send us questions and we can answer them live on the show. I think that um, it'll be even more exciting as we go forward. And I think some of the intergenerational differences will, will really become clear. Yes, yes. I, I, I think they've gotten buried because you're an old soul in many ways. <laughs> and you honestly, uh, you and I have mostly the same political views. I mean, we were trying to think of any political issue that we disagree on, and we couldn't think of anything right. uh, really substantial. So maybe the, the differences between us are just kind of how we view the world and, and our knowledge of, uh, you know, well, I, I may be more aware of current trends and, and you're more right. aware of historical ones that I am not aware of. And so um, we'll, we'll try to bring that forward. And, and I think so, because the perspective it. and, and yeah. the context in which we view issues matters right, so that right. if I know about Enron and Watergate yeah, in yeah. ways that you don't, I mean, you, you now are pretty good on Watergate because I'm Every week. sure of that. Yeah, um, yes. But I think it's going to be good for our audience to get the perspectives of the two of us. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's going to be really terrific. I hope that this all went smoothly because it was all live and it yes. is still live. And so, um, and this is the first show. So let us know in the comments, what you thought of the show. If you um, have any questions for us, and we also have an email IGP at politicon.com. Uh, so send us any questions you have, any guests you want to have on. And then you also hear just Jill and, me having conversations between the two of us. And so if you have any questions, send them your way and we'll have those uh, Ask Us Anything sessions uh, to make sure that we get to your questions. And we thank you for having been with us today. And we hope that you will subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes and that you go uh, on to, I guess, Victor, tell them the exact thing. It's the yeah, YouTube so it's actually, channel the, for Politicon. Yeah, so you're seeing the banner right now on the very bottom. It's youtube.com slash Politicon. Uh, and you will see a bunch of great content that Politicon releases. And now we have this show, which will be exciting. So go to youtube.com slash Politicon and be sure to click that bell for our weekly notifications uh, when the show does go live. And we'll be back next week with Ali Vitali. <laughs>